You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Listeners to episode nine of the Book of Nature podcast, a podcast hosted by three Christians who work in the sciences and enjoy talking about all things sciency. To my metaphorical right, we have Todd Pedler, associate professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Todd, what's new with you? What's new with me? Uh, what's new with me is I get on an airplane tomorrow morning to Japan for a collaboration meeting awesome. there. So I'm on my way. Yeah, it's all, it's all fun. So um, spend a week in Japan and and. You know, all day meetings starting at nine o'clock, ending at nine at night for for six days straight. Okay, so slightly be less fun. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and to my equally metaphorical left is Dan Dawson, assistant professor of the atmospheric sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. How's it going with the new job, Dan? It's going uh, busy as heck, but um, I'm getting there. Excellent. Just uh, went on a trip to Boulder for a uh, a workshop, or actually an annual meeting for. Uh, a university consortium for the atmospheric sciences, and uh, that was quite interesting. Cool. So, but I'm a little short on sleep, uh, <laughs> so we'll see how. Well, we'll, how that we'll goes, keep but. our expectations for you low then. Yeah. <laughs> As you should always. Yeah, just kidding. Yeah, no, I'm doing all right though. Okay. I'm. Re- yeah. And finally, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am. Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the rugged mountaintops of Karenport, Saskatchewan. Okay, uh, so beginning with listener feedback, uh, it's been quiet lately in the podcast's email inbox. We've previously had some good responses from listeners, and those responses have helped us shape future episodes and given us new ways of looking at our discussion topics. So get back to it, listeners. This podcast, like Scientific Discovery, is a collaborative effort. We can be contacted at bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. That address again is bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Find us also on Facebook. Uh, uh, Dan, um, any, uh, any action over on Facebook? Yeah, a little bit. Um, first, we have a uh, follow-up message from uh, Stephen, who uh, actually uh, made a message, uh, made some feedback on one of our earlier episodes, and uh, we neglected to mention him on last episode, but he wanted to clarify um, what he meant by being too nice to each other. Um, He said, basically, what I meant by too nice to each other was meant more like challenge each other. This was especially in the context of having the psychologist defend his trade as a science. Maybe I could be convinced that it should be considered a science on the whole, not just parts of it. Maybe not. But I am sure that he could have said a lot of weighty things that I had not considered. God bless. So thank you for that clarification, Stephen. And uh, hopefully we might shed some more light on that as uh, time goes on and have more opportunities for Charles to defend himself and explain himself and (laughs) prove to everybody that psychology is a worthy science. Might even come up today. Indeed. Uh, we also um, have uh, a re- really nice um, shout-out from a podcast known as The Untold Podcast. And they are, which I have yet to uh, listen to them, but I'm, I definitely plan on it because it looks very interesting, is um, on their about page. They have Engaging the Culture's Imagination. The Untold Podcast prevents free speculative fiction every month from a Christian worldview. Sounds very interesting. But anyway, they had some nice things to say to us about our Pluto episode. A great discussion on the planets, in particular Pluto. The concluding thoughts on why Christians should support space exploration are excellent. Thank you, Untold Podcast. All right, that's lovely. And we do have some more views and likes on our, on our uh, Facebook page, so keep them coming, folks. Cool. I'm a big podcast person, and I like speculative fiction, so I'll have to, um, I'll have to give some of their episodes a listen. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, turning... Oops, sorry. Sorry, that's all I have. All right, turning now to this episode's topic. Today we will be discussing replication and its discontents. 
The world of psychology was rocked recently by the publication in the journal Science of the results of a massive attempt to replicate the findings of some 100 psychological uh, re research studies. 270 researchers duplicated the methods and measures employed by the original researchers, trying to see if they would get the same results. Well, what they got wasn't pretty. Only 39% of the original findings were replicated, and the average effect size of findings was only about half of what the original researchers had found. So this means that if a research article is published showing a strong relationship between two variables, we can't really be certain that the relationship between the variables is actually strong. It might be weak, or there might not even be a relationship at all. Uh, for example... One of my all-time favorite research psychologists is Roy Baumeister, who has been busily plugging away for many years now at self-regulation research and the idea that our capacity for self-control seems to operate much like a muscle, being de temporarily depleted when exerted and growing stronger with repeated exertion over time. When our brains engage that self-control muscle, it requires a substantial amount of glucose. In a 2008 study, Baumeister and uh, Mazacampo uh, gave half of their participants sugary lemonade and the other half sugar-free lemonade, the participants who drank the sugary lemonade after having their self-control depleted, so they had more glucose to fuel their self-regulation, uh, made decisions that were more deliberative and analytical than the participants of the sugar-free group, which in, uh, employed more uh, shortcuts and heuristics. <coughs> Osborne and View, one of the teams in this replication project, repeated the study in virtually every detail and found nothing. Nothing at all. Now, my first reaction is that none may question the findings of the mighty Baumeister, and so Osborne and View must be found and punished. But that's just me. Others with a more reasonable bent, and perhaps more glucose in their systems, uh, might see this as a possible indicator that maybe what Mazacampo and Baumeister found might have been a false positive, or maybe it only holds true in certain circumstances that were particular to their study, or something like that. Uh, a link to a news story covering this project is included in the show notes. This project is part of what some have been calling a replication crisis in psychology, and reactions have been mixed. Some think that this is a major blow to the credibility of psychological research in general, while others casually brush it off as scientific business as usual. Uh, here at the Book of Nature podcast, we have assembled our crack team of experts to weigh in on the issue and talk about the importance of replication in science. So let's start with some general information to get going, Todd. Uh, let us, please, uh, tell us, please, what uh -huh. is meant by the term replication uh, and why scientists uh, consider it to be of substantial importance. Uh, do physicists, and if Dan wants to chime in on this after, meteorologists, uh, engage in these kinds of studies, attempting to essentially rerun other scientists' studies to see if they get the same results? Hmm. Well, first... As you say, first definitions. Um, now, replication as a word um, is, is not one that I often associate with the sphere of experimental physics within which I work. Um, normally, we're not interested in an exact replication of an experiment down to all the details, but, but rather confirmation of the results of an experiment by a second or subsequent experiments. Um, this confirmation is valued but often not sought beyond, uh, specifically sought beyond the first confirming measurement, but uh, more on that later. Um, let's talk generalities. Uh, replication ef effectively is uh, a, a re-measurement, a second measurement, uh, seeking to, to reproduce the results of an experiment because such reproduction or such reproducibility is deemed to be important, generally speaking, within the sciences um, uh, of, of, of all kinds. In discussing the need for replication, or if you will, confirmation, um, it's probably helpful to go back to early modernity and Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher best known for his critiques of pure reason, practical reason, and judgment, um, and as a philosopher who pushes thought forward um, into modernity. Uh, just an advertisement here, uh, Nathan Gilmore and I are blogging, and we've hit a substantial pause, but we promise to get back to it. Uh, we're blogging through Kant's critique of pure reason, um, blogs to be found at the Christian Humanist blog, so check out the posts so far. I think there's five total, uh, and we've only just begun, which means it's my turn, and, uh, <laughs> and 
I'm busy. Um, anyway, um, among the things that Kant has to say in the, in the critique of pure reason is, is this. Um, and I'm not going to quote his words, but I'm going to quote the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, who refers to Kant in his important work, The Logic of Scientific Discovery. Um, there, Popper writes, Kant was perhaps the first to realize that the objectivity of scientific statements is closely connected with the construction of theories with the use of hypotheses and universal statements. Only when certain events recur in accordance with rules or regularities, as is the case with repeatable experiments, can our observations be tested, in principle, by anyone. We do not even take our own observations quite seriously or accept them as scientific observations until we have repeated them and tested them. Only by such repetitions can we convince ourselves that we are not dealing with a mere isolated coincidence, but with events which, on account of their regularity and reproducibility, are in principle intersubjectively testable. That's from page 23 of the Routledge uh, edition that I have. Now, Popper's summary of Kant's observation is right on the money. And I think, uh, though it was a bit long, is the most straightforward explanation of the standards of practice in science that I know of. Uh, scientific inquiry involves the inference from experimental data of laws or rules, as he calls them, that govern behavior of systems or people, if psychology is to, to be denominated a science, under certain conditions. Such laws are universally binding, and if laws are to be established based on experimental data, then we'd better have confirmation through multiple observations and statistically significant measurements that are repeatable, so that then we have a reliable foundation from which to construct models and from the models to infer laws which govern the systems under study. So it is because we as scientists must humbly accept the limitations of our own experimental technique that we're, uh, that we're prepared at any moment to subject our own results and our own experiments to further tests by others. Um, we know that, uh, several things, we know, uh, first of all, A, our own experimental results have inherent uncertainties associated with them. Um, B, that there may be systematic uncertainties that also can exist because we've made some assumption in interpreting our data and have to allow for other assumptions to be made, uh, and so forth. And, uh, and C, that we're by nature fallible uh, and can therefore report an incorrect result because of simple mistakes. Uh, the willingness to submit our results to the critique of others first and second to further experiments, which will measure the same quantities, is a necessary hallmark of good science. And I think we've talked about this on this podcast before. Um, now let me move on to, to talk about physics in particular and get back to my own field and how we view replication. Uh, perhaps this is because uh, the way we view it, is, it uh, comes about because experiments in high energy or nuclear and particle physics are so expensive. Perhaps it's because we would, it would be really crazy to put together exactly the same experimental apparatus and independently make the exact same measurements, especially if data sets take 10 years to accumulate. Um, perhaps the reason is rather that we're interested in my field in making measurements of fundamental physical parameters that characterize a particle, a bound state of particles, nucleus, atom, molecule, molecular surface, or, or, or whatnot. Since we're measuring fundamental particles of such systems, then the aim of subsequent experiments may not be exact replication, but independent measurements using a somewhat different technique. Oftentimes, I think, in, in fact, the inexactness of the replication by the confirming experiment, uh, but the fact that we're measuring the same basic quantity, let's say the lifetime of a decaying particle or its mass, um, is actually helpful. Because the uncertainties in measurements associated with one experiment and the uncertainties in measurements obtained by the other confirming experiment may be largely independent, and that tends to strengthen the results. Um, when when uh, when confirming, it also tends to strengthen any statement of contradiction. Now, do people go out and try to repeat an experiment? You ask. Uh, sometimes, in many cases, first experiments may not have the statistical power to make claims of observation of new particles or a new effect under certain circumstances. So, an experiment may well be designed to gain, in terms of statistical power or the precision of measurement of observables that don't depend on statistical power. In such cases, we're not really 
talking replication or confirmation, but we're talking an improvement in experimental technique so that an observation previously made that didn't quite pass the sniff test for discovery can be redone so that one can claim discovery. Um, those, those hints of not quite statistically significant results are actually really helpful in guiding further, further experimental development. Um, the experiment uh, that does, if it does produce a result with significant significance, with sufficient significance, um, I realize I was redundant there, uh, to, declaim, to claim discovery will then sometimes in a subsequent or often contemporaneous experiment done by others be confirmed. Uh, the importance of confirmation, I think, is highlighted by the fact that in, indeed that confirming result will invariably be publishable in a top journal, not the top journal, um, which in my case is, is generally physical review letters, but a top journal, which is uh, you know, other products, other journals put out by physical review. So the question of confirmation gets a little bit sticky uh, in some cases. Um, suppose you had one experiment that discovered in its data evidence for the discovery of a new particle, and the statistics were such that it could be calculated that there is a one in a billion chance that what was recorded is a statistical anomaly. My question there is, do you really need a confirmation? In that experiment, which could be the data set could be subdivided into, let's say, four or ten periods of observation, each of which has sufficient statistics to claim observation of the particle, um, is the fact that you can subdivide your data set into large-ish samples that each could independently claim measurement, isn't that enough? I would tend to argue yes, but others may disagree. And certainly it's helpful to have a second experiment that takes a somewhat different approach, as I said earlier, to make the same observation. But if the statistics bear it out at a level of many times what is needed, or many orders, perhaps orders of magnitude, what it is needed to claim observation, then I'm not sure confirmation is that helpful. Now, this meandering thought brings up a very important second point. I'll just briefly mention it. Um, it's deeply and intimately connected to issues of repeating experiments. It's exceptionally important that, knowing the above, that our experimental measurements absolutely do have uncertainties associated with them, that we welcome the scrutiny that I've described. And in order to make such scrutiny most profitable, and this will come up later as we talk about the paper that we're, we're looking at, um, We've got to be very careful, careful to document our experimental work and give an honest appraisal of the uncertainties associated with our measurements and dig deep to find the systematic effects that might overwhelm the statistical effects. If we shirk this responsibility and report measurements whose uncertainties are smaller than they are, in fact, then we give too high a degree of credence to our own results. We're overstating the significance of our results and failing the test of virtue that we talked about a few episodes back. Um, we're then dishonest dealers, and, and so I would argue here it's our moral and ethical responsibility as scientists to undertake the estimation of uncertainties in an honest and, and, and open, transparent way um, in order to give our measurements the, the, the highest regard for, um, for the duties that we have as scientists. All right, enough of me. Um, thoughts? Well, I don't know. Um, I do find it interesting that um, when your statistical example included a uh, one in a billion chance of a false positive, I wonder if part of uh, what's going on with the different attitudes about the uh, the necessity of replication, and especially this kind of direct replication, uh, is that in uh, in, the, in psychology and social sciences, um, our standard cutoff point for what we would consider a statistically significant outcome is one in twenty. Uh, so that's a substantially right. higher likelihood of a false positive. So I I don't know mm -hmm. that that might be yeah part well, of it. that's 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 yeah that's absolutely right. And I, I I'm gonna I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, the next time I'm I'm up for a question. Um, but yeah, that, I mean that is definitely true because you know one in a billion or three in a billion is is what we call a five sigma result, um, and the five percent number that you're talking about is, you know, is something around two sigma, uh, which yeah. is something that we in particle physics or in physics in general, we couldn't even publish. It wouldn't even be enough to warrant publication of, of observation of an effect, um, let alone something that we would deem uh, significant. Oh, I did not yeah, know that. Just... 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to mm. point that out, that the uh, difference in what is uh, statistical significance, p-value, is quite dramatic between physics and psychology. Um, and, yeah, like you guys were, as Todd said, we're probably going to talk about this a bit later, is um, maybe part of that, part of the reason that there's this supposed crisis of replication in psychology is partly because of this somewhat what some some other uh, science sciences would consider way too high or low of a threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to chime in on a couple things Todd was saying um, because uh, about how uh, we, I, the replication, the word replication is somewhat problematic. I think that's true in meteorology too. Um, maybe this is because meteorology is, you know, considered a branch of physics, at least classical physics. Um, mm-hmm. But we have much the same kind of thing going on, where we we rarely, if ever, exactly replicate um, another per person's experiment. Um, at least in as much as we're we're trying to. Um, confirm a phenomenon or whatever, what we're trying to do is use different, what we often do is use different techniques, um, different models, uh, different data sets or whatever to try to confirm uh, a previously published or previously discovered effect or or phenomenon. So, um, uh, for example, there's there uh, there was a study done um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s that did a, uh, took a bunch of uh, collated a bunch of observations of uh, uh, tornadic thunderstorms and non-tornadic thunderstorms, um, uh, rotating thunderstorms called supercells, which I've talked about before, and tried to look at if there were any systematic differences between the two. Uh, classes of supercells, they both were rotating, um, and they should have, you know, why what did some produce tornadoes and others didn't, which we still don't know the answer to, by the way, but that's another story. Um, but one of the things that this particular study looked at was the, uh, the, the temperature of the cold outflow from the storm and found in their, um, in their study that warmer outflow tends to be associated with more tornadoes, tornadic activity in these storms, whereas storms with cooler outflow tend to have less tornadic activity. And uh, lots of studies since then have gone back and looked at the same basic um, effect to see if they can um, reproduce it or confirm it. But none of those studies have exactly replicated the original study's methods. Some have used computer models. I've done that. I've, I've tested this phenomenon myself, and I found you know, confirmed that this seems to be the case. And so there's a wide variety of methods that are being used out there. And one might say sometimes that maybe it's, a you know, people, we don't have enough of a constraint to the different methods that we use. But I find that to be kind of healthy because if you're using a bunch of different techniques, different approaches, um, and you're, you're essentially finding the same thing, that ought to be considered a strength, it's it's it, it, to to my mind at least naively it would seem that that would suggest that the effect you're looking at is is even more likely to be real if you have all these different methods all independent methods coming at the same coming down the same thing so, so that's that's typically what is done in meteorology um, mm-hmm. so the short answer is yes we do try to replicate uh, but it's I wouldn't call it replication I call it trying to reproduce now that being said. There is cases where we do try to do strict replication, and that, that's done in, for example, if somebody has an, a new uh, computer model to, um, uh, that they want, that they're introducing. Um, one of the first things that anybody in our field wants to know when, th- when this new computer model comes out is it, can it reproduce to a high degree of accuracy um, certain canned uh, solutions to certain canned problems in, in, in meteorology. For example, if there's where, where we, um, so by, by, yeah, excuse me, told you I was short on sleep. Um, by a canned um, problem, we could say some really simple flow pattern, like for example, a mountain wave. So you have this 
you know, simple mountain wave. It's a two-dimensional flow, and you have wind blowing over the mountain. And you can actually solve the, what the flow of the waves of the wind that blow over the mountain look like downstream of the mountain with a simple analytic formula. So you can solve it exactly under certain assumptions and conditions. And if you're trying to produce a new model, general purpose weather model that will handle highly complex flows, you ought to be able to at least reproduce this simple analytic solution in your numerical model. And so a lot of times modelers will run that, their model through the, that benchmark and others, similar ones, and show, yes, indeed, we can replicate this behavior. And that gives you confidence that their model is, is a good one because it at least can get these simple problems. So that's an example. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. So in, in psychology, uh, we also consider it a strength if uh, we find similar results using a variety of uh, different methods. Uh, the, uh, uh, one component of this, uh, this psychology replication crisis is that, uh, and this is part of why we, uh, we do these uh, more direct uh, and as, as literal as we can, I guess if I can use that word, um, replications, <coughs> is uh, what we do when we try different approaches uh, but find different outcomes. Uh, so uh, usually the the response, uh, especially by whoever ran the original study, which was not you know not reproduced by the subsequent study, uh, is that uh, you know it's this doesn't in they would say this does not in any way invalidate my finding uh, because uh, well I used a a. a uh, randomized two-group experimental design, whereas you used a correlational approach, uh, or the the differences are because um, uh, this study uh, used a self-report measure, while another study uh, used uh, a, co- a cognitive uh, uh, reaction time uh, uh, measure and kind of a computer-based uh, thing. So um, when we find the uh, differences uh, in our results. Um, our reaction uh, tends to be uh, not that this uh, casts any doubt on the original finding, uh, but instead highlights it's the uh, the fact that different um, different research methods uh, can produce different results. Uh, is, is that the same kind of thing yeah, in your fields? That uh, so, so so what do you do yeah, when you a, a... Uh, try uh, a, a new model or try a new a different technique and uh, you find something completely different from uh, what the previous researcher found. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a um, really good point, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to make that point and I forgot. But uh, yeah, I think that there is some there is an asymmetry uh, here. Um, mm-hmm. If you have a bunch of have two or three or four very different techniques or methodologies arriving at a similar conclusion. I think that is grounds for improve, uh, increased confidence that this uh, conclusion is correct or this effect is real or whatever it is you're looking at. But I don't think that it's necessarily the case that the converse is true because um, there can be um, – re- it, it is, I think, a legitimate possibility that if these different techniques aren't coming up with the same thing, that it is because of differences in the techniques and not – necessarily because the effect isn't real. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's, it's a good question is to see, I think that, you know, we're all biased and, we, and so we're like, if, especially if we've spent a lot of time working on a problem and we found an effect, we don't want to let go of that um, as humans. So, yeah, I think that there is this, we're too quick to jump to that conclusion. But I, I think it is at least possible that, um, that that's the case, and then in that case, you should go back and uh, try to find out what possible differences between the techniques you're, that different researchers are using could plausibly explain why one found this result and the other didn't. And so you would have to go to back to that. And you know, you shouldn't just assume that if you're, all these different techniques are coming up with the same result, that 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 means that the result has to be true. There could be some underlying systematic bias in all these techniques that you have has has been overlooked. 
So, um, but I don't think it's a pure sim- symmetry to that to that problem. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Todd? Hmm. Mind the well, there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, my next question. We're going to take this up again. So maybe yeah, we should yeah, some, move right, on yeah. to. We've got some time issues today, so let's keep rolling. So, uh, so Dan, okay, Um, Dan, I need you to help me with my ongoing inferiority complex as a psychologist podcasting in the presence of hard scientists. I I was feeling pretty good about my place in the universe after episode three when we decided that psychology is, in fact, a real science. Uh, But now this replication crisis comes up, and now I'm all insecure again. Uh, So, uh, is this uh, so-called replication crisis, is is it just a psychology problem, or does it exist in other fields? Well, I definitely think it is a problem in psychology and in any other field that it exists. Um, I did some looking into this uh, problem. It, um, It looks like after this paper that came out showing this this problem with uh, the the difficulty with replicating results, lots of other fields started kind of doing some soul searching, and uh, well, they've been doing that for a while. But uh, I think this has become a hot topic now in a lot of fields because of this. Um, and sure enough, they've been finding some of the same kinds of problems. I think uh, there was a study done in cell biology or, or cancer sorry, preclinical cancer uh, studies that showed that a lot of those were not able to be replicated. Although there's some issues with that study because they are bound by confidentiality agreements to not explain which ones were not replicated and which ones were. So there, that brings up a whole other issue is like who's, who's replicating or reproducing the reproducers or replicators, you know. Um, and that's, uh, and, and sh- you, you shouldn't just assume that, that the replication study, it's, you know, free from error and bias in and of itself. So that, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> we should all, mm-hmm. we should have this, you know, back and forth, you know. Um, so um, the short answer is, yeah, I think that it is a problem in, in other scientific fields. Um, I think that, uh, I, I w- I'm not going to venture to speculate as to which ones have a worse problem than others, because I don't think we know the answer to that. Um, there was one uh, study that uh, tried to talk about the, the hierarchy of the sciences and looking at the number of positive results reported. So this hierarchy of sciences that, um, that uh, you, we may, you may have heard of is this idea that you have the physical sciences on this top of this pyramid that's the purest, you know, best, toughest science. This is where the term distinction hard versus soft science comes from. We talked a little bit about this in previous episode. Um, and then as you go down from there, you get progressively softer, um, more um, further removed from some fundamental, supposed fundamental reality. So then at the very bottom, you have psychology and sociology as being the soft sciences. And there was a study that tried to look at the number of reported positive results. And if this hierarchy is, is a good way of looking at the sciences, that there really is this decrease in rigor or what have you as you go down the, the hierarchy, then you should see more positive results being being uh, presented in uh, the softer fields like psychology and sociology simply because there is less constraints on those kinds of reports. And maybe this gets back to this this disparity between statistics, yeah, st- thresholds of statistical significance that we talked about a bit ago. And it seems to be the case that that's true. So um, what that means and whether... It's something that we we should worry about so much because I think that, um, I don't know, but um, I think that this, you know, may reflect as much on how the different uh, uh, phenomenon that these different fields are studying and the difficulty in in studying them um, uh, increases as that phenomenon becomes more complex. Um, So... uh, yeah, I think it is an issue. Um, I don't have a good uh, answer for what to do about it, but uh, I guess I will say that. Well, actually, um, this will come up later, so I'll leave it at that. Okay. And I'll yeah. 
Let me just say one thing about the the hierarchy thing. I mean, I I think if you don't put a uh, if you don't put character judgment in this hierarchical tree, um, if you don't put value judgments in in such a, a tree, then the hierarchical model actually isn't all that bad in this way. The hard sciences tend to be those for which uh, there really is good scientific reason to expect hard and fast laws, even statistical laws, but hard and fast laws to govern behavior um, of systems. Whereas in in you know in biology, the, biology is much more complex. I mean, I put it in terms of the the difficulty of teasing out the yes. the, the bulk phenomena. And as you if you if you put mathematics on top, which I would. Um, and then physics, then chemistry, then biology, yeah. then the social sciences. Um, I actually think that's a helpful way to think about things because we're going from the more fundamental atomistic to the more bulk. Yeah, I, I agree. And, no, that's sort of what I was trying to get at, but you said it more sure. eloquently than I, than I did. Yeah. And, and this, this also is, is why there is the difference in treatment of statistics. Right. Um, and, you know. Uh, and, and, and maybe even raise questions as to whether statistical treatment is useful um, in 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 the soft sciences, so 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 called. That, that's a very good point. I and mm-hmm. because you're you're looking, I don't know, at such bulk, more bulk, more complicated phenomenon as you sort of go down this pyramid, and less. So you mm-hmm. can't put as as a as much constraints on your, your experimental methods, there's, there's right. a, um, then the, the statistical power of, of mm-hmm. really be- decreases, and that's through no, you know, like you said, you shouldn't be putting a value judgment on the researchers or the field right. itself because of that. It's just the way it is. Exactly. And it makes it really, really hard to, to uh, apply statistics, statistical mm-hmm. methods to those. I think you should mm-hmm. still try... Um, and that's why I applaud the, the, the efforts of some of these, yeah. these, these replication studies because, I mean, they're, they're, they're realizing that, oh, we really should try to do this. But mm-hmm. there may be only so far we can get until we start getting that more fundamental theory and reality behind, behind uh, the, the, like, mm-hmm. biology or uh, yeah. psychology. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. So. Uh, yeah, and yeah. there's there are some um, some other issues that uh, have been coming up lately. Uh, looking at the statistics that we use in the behavioral sciences, uh, which actually, you know, the more I think about it, could that could possibly be a future episode topic? I don't know. I don't know if the uh, the listeners uh, would have patience mm. with us going off for an hour and an hour or an hour and a half <laughs> on uh, the um, relevant differences between our respective fields and the uh, statistical techniques that we use to analyze our data. That's right. Yes, Please listeners. I, I'd yes, like to book hear of nature podcast to... at gmail.com. Yeah, and... What do you think? Uh, do you want to hear a statistics episode? I mean, I've, and... I'm teaching a, uh, statistics in the behavioral sciences next semester, and so my students are probably going to say no. Mm. But the rest of you, <laughs> what do you think? Well, regarding regarding statistics, um, I, I'd be happy to do an episode on that. Uh, I I myself am not the most versed in um, statistics. It's one of those uh, in my field. Um, it's used in a, in some areas very extensively, in others um, like the the kind of stuff that I do. Um, we are trying to get more at basic theory and, and, and an understanding of phenomenon, and so we don't focus too much on trying to tease out effects on backgrounds and, and such like that. Um, but I'd be happy to to uh, to participate in, in that kind of thing. But it's worth, I guess, it's worth pointing out that statistics themselves, statistical techniques. Um, vary in their complexity they they can be interpreted in many different ways the results um and and like even in different statistical techniques can give you different ideas of how important an effect is 
So you have to be careful how you interpret those. So there, there's, it, there's no view from nowhere, I guess, in that. There's always going to be a, some level of subjective interpretation being placed, even on the outcome of a hard, you know, mathematical, statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. So that's just worth right. pointing that out as an aside. So. Okay, yeah, that, that fruit for possible future discussion. I'm liking this. This is good. Okay. All right, um, so moving on, turning back to you, Todd. Uh, what reasons have been put forward in the literature for why this discrepancy exists between uh, these original published studies and these attempts at replication? Uh, and what do you think might be done to try and deal with the underlying causes of this, uh, this replication crisis? Okay, so you've, you've, you've given me yes, the big I one. Yes, I have. Uh, in, in some sense, um, I, I, I'd say. <laughs> well, one thing that the, the authors of the paper before us note is, uh, is two things, and we've already touched on this. Um, it, it is, number one, too easy to say both that replication means the original result is correctly understood. Um, replication simply meaning that the result is on somewhat firmer ground but says nothing about the theoretical understanding uh, uh, or of that which is being tested in the experiment. And also, it is too easy to say that a failure of replication means the original result was a false positive. So we've already, again, we've already touched on this, and they very firmly say this in, in, in the paper that we have um, been reading. Um, now, I have a hard time understanding how a result of, uh, let's say, a P less than 0.75 is a positive in any sense at all. But that's beside the point. Um, I mean, even the gold standard, as I've noted, of, of 5%, um, which in sigma terms is about two sigma, is, is non-evidence in physics. Um, what are the specific reasons for this failures of attempts to replicate? Um, first is that the methodology in the replication attempt differed in ways that masked the ability of the experiment, the replicating experiment, to observe the effect seen in the original experiment. Um, in the paper, replication attempts were made in such a way such as to minimize, so as to minimize these potential differences, but it's still possible, they say, that unanticipated factors could have caused problems for replicators. Um, this is an interesting possibility, but it's one that calls into question the original study in a pretty significant way. If there are unknown effects that could cause the original study to see a larger effect size than the replication study does, it seems to me this calls into question the entire calculation of a p-value at all. Um, it seems to me a p-value should be a reliable figure. Um, this non-replication is frequent enough in this in this paper of these you know test of a hundred experiments um, that there's much reason for concern in the reliability of these p-values. Um, it's easy to wave the white flag and say, well, there were unknown effects that skewed our result. Um, and if that's the response, that's that's kind of disconcerting to me. Um, one thing that I noted in here, unless I've misread the paper, um, which is certainly a possibility, um, I, I saw that. Only 47% of the original results lay within the 95% confidence interval for the replication study. What that means is, I mean, a confidence interval is the interval within which you expect 95% of experiments, of identical experiments, to produce a value within 90, you know, that 95% of them should should be within this range and 5% outside the range. In this paper, the, the replicating studies found that 53% of the original results lay outside the 95% confidence interval for, for the replication study. That seems really problematic. Yeah. 50, 53% outside versus what five, you know, you would expect only 5%. Now these, there are finite numbers, and so so you know if you if you found that ten percent of the, the the original results were outside the ninety five percent confidence interval, I wouldn't care about that because that, that's within you know there, there's, these are small statistics, that's fine. But fifty three percent versus five percent that's that's a huge difference, and it and it makes me question the the evaluation of the ninety five percent confidence interval in physics. If this happened, if you were claiming ninety five percent confidence. And, and, and you found that 53% of, of, of previous experiments were ruled out uh, in, in this way, I, there, there'd be all kinds of red flags all over the place. So 
I, again, I, re I realize the 5% is the gold standard for, for psychology, but that 5% ought to be a true 5%. It seems to me that, that yeah, somehow maybe, here there's Let's a say rather that uh, the 5% the, the um, is the minimum standard rather than the gold standard. We would, we would really like lower than that. Oh, 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 sure, sure. You like you like point one or, or whatever. Yeah, I know. I get that. Um, the sec yeah. Did you want to comment? I I just wanted to say I I yeah I completely agree that that seems to be really problematic and 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 the fact that it that there's so many of those studies you know more than half that fell outside of that it just makes you wonder if there's something else going on not. Not simply because um, there was some issue with the methodology of the early study or whatever, but if there's just some other possible explanation, like, um, I mean, obviously, it seems to me like just the mere fact that you're going to try to reproduce a study is going to, um, especially if you're using different subjects, different circumstances, whatever, you can't replicate everything exactly, if, if that is going to, you know, basically broaden the uh, statistical distribution to the point where you would actually expect an, more studies to fail to replicate previous results than a naive calculation based on the confidence interval would tell you. Like you said, you would expect it only 5%, you get 50%. But... Um, so I guess what I'm saying is there's a way of, of looking at this where the previous, the original studies, more of them may actually have found real effects, but, um, but, uh, the, what 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 you should do it, uh, to look at that is yes, it definitely casts doubt on that original effect. Um, but you could also take the, re, re, the results that are, uh, the replication studies and combine those with the previous and see what that looks like. And I'd like to see more of that, to see what kind of mm -hmm. statistical significance you get from that, and then replicate it again and reproduce it yeah. again. And maybe the problem here is not necessarily that, and maybe what you'll find is that, yeah, there are, those effects are there, but they're just not as strong. And maybe the problem here is that um, uh, we just don't have enough trials. We don't have enough different mm -hmm. circumstances. It's possible that the pre the previous uh, researchers were you know unconsciously biased in how they mm -hmm. set up the experiment, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the results are wrong. I think I think it seems it stands a reason that you would expect you would almost you would almost expect that you would not see as strong of a, of a result for some of these reasons, but. Well, I'm rambling, yeah. so please. No, the no, the, I mean the the main thing that if you if you try and they did do this, they did they did do averages, um, yeah. Which is another you know they they did average the replication study with the the previous study. Um, my my issue with that, in some sense, is well, how do you, how do you average it? Um, average the, right. the, the the weighted average of a, of a, of a pair of studies is a is a another thing that's it, it's important to do right um but when you have two two results that are fundamentally incompatible yeah it doesn't help you um right. averaging is hard right. and so what it what it says to me the big bottom line here is that evaluation of confidence intervals it seems to me must be somehow badly out of whack I, I agree that there's that, something yeah. missing so so let me just uh, let me wrap up yeah, this right. topic i guess i have i've Quite a few remarks, but uh, you know, I can we can we can table them. Um, the other effect that they talk about is reporting bias or publishing bias, um, and this is this is important to talk about. I mean, there is pressure to only publish uh, because one can't publish null results very easily, so many don't even try. There's a lot of pressure to publish results that show a large effect size, and so that bias towards positive results means that when replication is attempted, there's more of a chance of seeing a smaller effect than a larger one. Yeah. Um, and this happens in physics, too. It happens all the time. Sometimes you see a significant signal in a data set or a partial data set, and a later test using a larger sample will show a smaller effect when the difference in sample sizes is, is normalized away and taken into account. Um, so it, it's completely expected that you, you publish on the site of a signal, and that may, large, that may often come from a statistical fluctuation in, in, in the parameter, you know, in, in the data set that you're looking at that's upward, 
um, that has crossed the bar, and you say, "Woohoo, we got <laughs> Time it!" Time to publish. Um, yeah, and you leap to publish yeah. it. Um, there, there are techniques in actually evaluating this kind of thing. Um, one of which has the the, the cutesy name, uh, the look elsewhere uh, effect, where you where, where you where you you check to see you know uh, through through this technique whether your whether your signal is likely to be real or not. Um, but it, it certainly happens. It certainly happens that um, that results do tend to be biased towards positive early. And because there's that publication pressure, um, it turns out for sure. It turns out for sure that um, that later studies, which, as they point out, don't have that publication bias, uh, they're almost certainly going to show a lower size. Yeah, that that's what I was tr- again trying to get at. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and I just could, I couldn't think of the name for it. But yeah, the the the, the idea that you stop when you find a, something significant, right? Yeah. Right. right, which isn't necessarily good science. No. So, but, but um, we, we, we mm-hmm. this I think is is a systematic problem in science as it is practiced today. Sure. No, it, it definitely is. So, as to what to do about it, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, it's hard for me to judge. It's hard for me to judge between my my own field, uh, where five sigma is the standard, where we have to have it, otherwise we don't publish a, an observation, versus a five percent standard. Um, I think, though, that, that certainly this, this uh, 5% versus 50% effect tells me that the one thing that's really got to be done is to dig into the use of statistics um, for, for, these, um, for these, this kind of study. Because I, 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 it just seems to me it doesn't, doesn't smell Yeah, good. like I said, I mean, there's, there's something, been, something been an uh, ongoing but, uh, uh, conversation uh, mm-hmm. in the, the, psych- the, uh, the research psychology literature lately uh, talking about um, you know, uh, about the statistics that we use and uh, some of the problems, uh, some of the exact problems that you're talking about, and then what we can do about it. Do we have any better statistics mm-hmm. that we can use, um, you know, any better methods? Right. Uh, as for the publication bias, right. I, I know that... Um, or can you apply uh, it at somebody, all? I mean, uh, yeah. There was a, uh, a journal of... I'm, I'm gonna, probably going to mess up the... Uh, specific name of this journal, but uh, the Journal of Results in Support of the Null Hypothesis, so that we could publish. It was a publication venue for these things. Uh, yeah, nobody read it, and it closed down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. null results are really important. I mean, they they they, they yes. actually are important, um, and we do publish them in in physics. It's it's uh, it's a publishable thing. Um, probably not as much as should be, but it, it can serve as a guide for theory, uh, for sure. You know, if you, if 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 theory expects uh, something and you go look for it and you don't find it, well, by gosh, golly, you know, the the, the theorists have to change, you know, have to change. Yeah. Um, and so, not publishing those results actually hampers progress, in my opinion. I think a great example of this recently that of a null result that actually got some really good press coverage and. Um, was uh, the recent uh, dark matter experiment up in uh, the Lux dark matter experiment? Yes, they yeah. they mm-hmm. published uh, their their first you know batch of data, and there had been some hints of dark matter particles of a certain relatively no, low mass of something like eight uh, giga electron volts or something, which mm-hmm. was lower than what most researchers had expected. Um, but there were these hints there, and so. Um, it turned out that the Lux machine might have been able to see those if they had been there. Well, when mm-hmm. they revealed their their data, and after unblinding it so that um, that there wasn't any bias when people when the researchers were actually looking at the data, um, they found nothing. Where if mm-hmm. those particles had existed, and the hints from the other experiments that they should have seen like a hundred or two hundred of them, mm-hmm. and they didn't mm-hmm. find anything. And yeah. um, so, uh, but one of the headlines, or one of the quotes in one of the articles about this, this was in the in the mainstream media, which I thought was interesting. It was like, we saw nothing, but we saw nothing better than anybody <laughs> else had before. So, and I thought that I thought that was great. I mean, it's it's yeah. a great quote showing, yeah, these null results mm-hmm. are important. Yeah. Well, and what we often turn null results into. I mean, the way that null results are published are not merely statements that, well, we didn't find what we were looking for. Um, 
but what we use is very careful evaluation of again a confidence interval for um, a confidence interval for the effect sought. So 95% confidence upper limit or 90% is usually what we use. Um, a 90% a 90% confidence limit on this particular thing, um, which again is is important as a guide for theory um, to say well all right we can be you know so and so confident that the effect isn't this big, so um, our, and, and since our theory predicts it to be much, much larger than that limit, we, we better revise. Um, and so again, those, the, the publication of such results, uh, uh, it's really crucial, I, I think. All right. So. Okay, uh, last question to you, Dan. Uh, so, uh, like I said, there's been some mixed uh, responses to this replication crisis um, coming from... Um, coming from some different sources. Uh, what's your evaluation of the seriousness of this, uh, this replication crisis? Is it a crisis? Is that the right word to use? Um, yeah, I thought about this. I don't think it really is the right, at least I, I wouldn't use it. Um, I think it's a problem. I think it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. I think all of all of we scientists need to kind of look at how we're doing things these days and and come and and really reflect on it. But I think a better word probably is sobering. Um, at least that that's, is a good word. That's the one that that came to my mind when I was thinking of a different word, um, uh, because it it is something that should you know sort of take us down a couple notches and and have, have us uh, look at what what we're doing and this issue with publication bias and this publisher perish mentality is like you got to publish your results got to publish your results it's tremendous pressure particularly on early career scientists such as myself to publish as much as we possibly can and um there um there's a lot of temptation there to cut corners or not be as rigorous as you otherwise would be in testing a new result and, and, and simply coming out and saying, I got to publish it now or, you know, and, and there is something to be said for not waiting till everything is perfect to publish because you can, that can paralyze you. So we got to find some kind of balance. Um, but I don't, I think the balance is too far the, uh, the way of, of being, not being careful enough. So I think that, that we need to, we need to take this to heart and all of us, no matter what field you're in, in science. Um, I don't think that it indicates that science is broken in any way. I mean, the very fact that we're having this conversation and that there's this big uh, um, replication paper that came out in psychology that really tried to look hard at this shows that we are being serious and that science is working um, to try to fix this issue. Um, it's just going to be very difficult um, going forward. And, you know, it... It shows that it's very, very difficult to replicate results to begin with, and we talked for some of these reasons why that's the case. And in some cases, it's hard to even define what we mean by replicating result. What, how can we tell when something, when a result has been reproduced or replicated? Um, things like that. Those are the kind of questions we also have to ask. And the people who are doing the replication um, shouldn't, you know, think that they're somehow immune from criticism of their methods. So we're all in this together, and, um, and there's no, uh, everybody is responsible for, for this, I think, for going forward with this. So right. that's, that's what okay, I think. Okay, uh, well, listeners, let's continue the conversation. Talk to us on Facebook. Uh, send us emails at uh, bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Um, post, uh, post your thoughts in the comments section uh, with the show notes. Okay, um, Dan, it's your choice for uh, next episode's topic. Uh, what can we look forward to? All right, what did I say we were going to do? <laughs> <laughs> That's an uh, yeah. We talk, we we mentioned I th we did this in the email, and I I'm, I'm blanking. The LHC. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The LHC says the particle physicist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the LHC is 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 awesome it's it's like our modern in some ways uh akin to uh a modern version of a cathedral where it's one of those huge uh collaborative efforts where you know many people who maybe not even be alive to see the fruits of their labors contribute to it just like the old uh 
cathedrals in the in in uh, the Middle Ages, and uh, so I kind of want to look at the LHC as sort of a a scientific version of a cathedral, and and what and uh, whether it's a uh, a worthy goal, it's, it's something that we should be doing these gigantic physics experiments to try to get at the the fundamental nature of reality, or if, or if we're just it's another kind of Tower of Babel that we're doing, and. Uh, I think hmm. you probably guess which side I come down on that, but uh, we can, we can <laughs> discuss that and um, yeah. and whether or not we're going to see anything really new with this the latest uh, restart. Sounds the great, machine. So, all right, looking cool. forward That's to the it. Idea. Yeah. All right. Uh, the Book of Nature is a publication of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Sway Jimenez. So, on behalf of Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler, I am Charles Hackney, thanking you for joining us for another hour or so of inquiring into the Book of Nature. If you like the episode, give us an email, post a comment, find us on Facebook, leave a review at iTunes. Look for us next time when Dan will be leading our discussion on the Large Hadron Collider. Until then, listeners, I leave you with these words of wisdom from the great Waylon Jennings. If I'd never felt the sunshine, I'd never curse the rain. If my feet could fit a railroad track... I guess I'd have been a train.